Taking our Bibles this morning then and turning to Genesis and the chapter 18. Genesis and the chapter 18. Entering into the chapter at the verse 16. Genesis 18, beginning our reading then at the verse 16. The Word of God says, And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do, after this manner to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for the lack of five? He said, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. He spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. He said unto him, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall be thirty found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. And Abraham returned unto his place. Ending our reading there at the end of the chapter. We're continuing, of course, our thoughts and Lord, teach us to pray. And last week, we began this study in what we have termed the Alpha of prayer, believing this, of course, to be the first recorded prayer in the Word of God. And coming to it then, we identified that the Lord indeed is revealing unto Abraham that which was to unfold in the cities of the plain. A great and a terrible judgment was pronounced because of the wickedness and because of the sin of the people of those cities. Abraham then, in receipt of this knowledge, 
does what I believe every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ must manifest and exemplify in their life also because he stood yet before the Lord, the Bible tells us in verse 22. And then in verse 23, he drew near and stood before the Lord and offered a prayer that we term a prayer of intercession. And so last week, we identified the first point in our study in this chapter as being the purpose of the prayer. Yes, his heart was burdened, undoubtedly burdened for Lot, someone who was near and dear to him. But the motivation, the purpose that he came before the Lord, that he drew near unto the Lord, that he poured out his heart unto the Lord, was because of a compassion for those who were within He asked the Lord time and time again, remember, to spare the city. So the challenge came even from the Word of God as to what we do. When living our lives in receipt of all that the Lord has revealed lies before those who are outside of Him, lies before those who are our neighbors, our work colleagues, our school friends, those who do not know the Lord, those who, yes, we may even say, have no concern for the things of the Lord, nor indeed the matter of their own soul. What do we do? I believe that the Word of God instructs us here to come before the Lord and pray for them. To pray that the Lord will do a work in our town, that the Lord will do a work in families, that the Lord will do a work in the individual lives of all those who are lost and perishing and dying in their sin. And here we are, the people of God, with the great treasure of truth contained in His Word, and that should motivate us, them to pray. Undoubtedly, if we truly take this burden upon our hearts, if we know what it is to be stirred within because of the plight of those who are around us, Undoubtedly, then you and I will also be willing to engage in many activities, many outreaches to reach them. But the primary response from reading this chapter and from the instruction we receive in this chapter is to be before the Lord in prayer, to intercede for the lost. But as we continue then our studies in this a chapter as we come further to consider what's before us in this prayer. Point number two we identify as the reasoning in the prayer. The reasoning in the prayer. Now remember, Abraham was praying unto God in this full knowledge of all that God intended to do. But notice the firm conviction that underpinned his prayer because this was by no means a stab in the dark. Rather, this was a request predicated upon firm conviction. That's seen for us in the verse 23. Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? And then in the verse 25, That be far from thee to do after this manner to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You see, to Abraham, it was perplexing. It was illogical. It was even impossible to believe that God would destroy a city for its wickedness in which righteous men and women were to be found. This was not the God that he knew. 
This was not the God who had called him out of Ur, the Chaldees, a pagan land, a God-forsaken land, but nevertheless, the land of Abraham's nativity. This was not the God who had been long-suffering with him when he transgressed in Egypt and had to be humbled under the hand of the Almighty God and retrace his steps end to the altar at Bethel and rededicate himself unto the Lord. This was not the God who had spared Lot and his family in the battle with Kedilomar. This was not the God who in his grace and providence had promised to Abraham a future, a people, and a great prosperity. This was not what he had come to expect from the kind, gracious, patient, compassionate, benevolent, good God who had revealed himself to Abraham. This was not the character that we see in El Elyon, the Most High God, El Shaddai, the Almighty God. This is not what Abraham believed his God would do. Was he right? Of course he was. Because Abraham's conviction was soundly rooted in this belief. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I think if I was before God in this moment, that I would make the mistake of appealing solely to God's mercy. This is not what Abraham did. He appealed to his righteousness. But I believe that I would have made the mistake of praying and appealing to God's mercy alone. In doing so, I would be praying in a flawed manner. Because when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, I would then be found in a position of accusing God of being unmerciful. That's because simply appealing to His mercy, simply appealing to what we believe to be the most necessary characteristic of God to engage in that moment places an ultimatum upon God. Do this because you're merciful, or if you don't do this, then by implication you are not merciful. But Abraham reasoned. And why it would be a mistake to pray in that way is such a prayer is not reasoning. It's demanding. It's demanding from God that thing that we think is most necessary in that moment. And this is a mistake that so many of of the believers in this generation make in prayer. They come before God and they say, Father, because I'm your child, then answer this prayer. Father, you said that you would honor them that honor you, so here we are laboring so hard but receiving so little blessing, so I guess you're not truly a God of your word. Lord, the prayer of faith will save the sick, you said. You would raise them up, and here I am praying, but there's no sign of my loved one getting any better. Nowhere, nowhere in this prayer do you see Abraham demand. No, he provides an argument which is logical and based upon a firm conviction. 
And so as we come to this prayer today and we identify Abraham reasoning with God and saying, wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? That be far from thee to slay the righteous with the wicked, that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. He's appealing to the righteous character of God. He's appealing in that moment uh, on behalf of those who are contained within that city, both the lost and those who identify with God. But all along, he's basing his argument upon his conviction that God always does what's right. Too easily we shout out the demands. And then when a sovereign God doeth what he will, we become disappointed, disillusioned, even disconnected. I want to make abundantly clear before we progress any further, in no way am I suggesting that any of us should argue with God. We have no right to tell God that we know better. We have no right to tell God that we have a way that is a, provides a better solution. But it is my firm conviction that the place of prayer, in the closet place with God, that is the place, the only place where we can, where we should, and where we must wrestle with the big questions of life. And to do so properly, I suggest to you, we must begin where Abraham began, coming before God with the conviction. And note it was a conviction, not merely a belief, but rather a conviction that the judge of all the earth does right. He can only do what's right, and he will always do what's right. Now, notice how all of this played into Abraham's reality. He knew that God had said that sin was to be punished. Sodom and Gomorrah were to be destroyed, and he knew then that a just God was duty-bound to punish sin. But he also knew that a just God was duty-bound to hear the cry of his elect who cry unto him day and night. That yes, while fire and brimstone were but the just reward for the people's iniquity, then he also came before the Lord with the full assurance and the full confidence that the same God, the same God who had pronounced that judgment, the same God who was willing then to follow through in that judgment was also the same God who had appeared unto Abraham and said, I am thy shield, I am thy exceeding great reward. So he stood before God and he said, that destroying the righteous with the wicked, that be far from thee, O God. Dear believer, we come to this message this morning in the context of intercessory prayer, of receiving a challenge to pray for the lost of this town and beyond. Surely as we do so, we must come before God realizing and identifying that the same God to whom Abraham prayed 
is the same God before whom we come. That as we go to God on behalf of a people with a sentence of condemnation before them, sleepwalking as it were into a lost sinner's hell, that we have the same conviction that the judge of all the earth will do right. That he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That his ear is ever open to the sinner's cry. That his arm is not shortened, that it cannot save. That he today commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That he invites one and all to come unto him, and he promises that whosoever will come unto him, he will in no wise cast out. That if they will but call upon him's name, then he will answer. That if they will but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then they will be saved. That today, if the people of this town, those who are lost and dying in their sins, would not harden their heart, but rather hear his voice, then he will hear from heaven and forgive their sins. Right now, he says to the children, come unto me. Right now, he says to the adults, come unto me, to the high and to the mighty. He says, come unto me, to the down and to the out. He says, come unto me. Tell you, brothers and sisters, we have a purpose to pray. But we have a strong conviction from which we can pray and intercede for the lost. And so the challenge goes forth from the Word of God as we know that the judge of all the earth shall do right. As we know that God is not willing that any soul in this town should perish as we know that his ear is now, right at this very moment, open to our cry. Will you draw near? Will you stand before God on behalf of the lost who you live among? It's my firm conviction that We fail to do that as often as we should because we fail to establish the firm foundation of that solid conviction. Very few in life know what it is to get to the point where unequivocally they say the judge of all the earth does right. This is by no means a rebuke. It is a heartfelt reminder from someone that I, I hope you begin, you're beginning to see does love you. That God in his word has reminded us that he always does what's right. And you may not understand why your loved one passed away. You may not understand why sickness and serious illness come your way. You may not understand why your son or your daughter is wayward and off in a far country. You may not understand why your marriage is under strain, maybe even coming apart at the seams. 
You may not understand why you lost your job or your business. You may not understand why your whole world seems to be turned upside down. Everything seems to be in turmoil. You turn to the right hand and there's disaster. You turn to the left hand and there's great trial. You look behind you, it's filled with disappointments. You look ahead and all you see is despair. And that may be exactly where you're at this morning. And instead of wishing things were different, instead of wishing that you could go back to a certain point in your life when all is well, I encourage you to come back to this unchangeable truth. The judge of all the earth does right. Many times we ask, why me, God? Many times we say, why does God allow His children to go through deep valley experiences? But I always counter this question by simply replying, why not me? Why not you? Why not us? And that's not cold and it's not heartless. It's rather the stated fact that we as believers are not exempt from trial and trouble. That God never promised us that our life would be filled with ease and all the moments would be filled with happiness, true contentment and joy. Rather, it's a case that trial and opportunity are our opportunity to demonstrate our faith in God, our unwavering conviction that He always does what's right. Is it not true that He's a loving God? Too loving ever to be unkind. Is it not true that He's a wise God, too wise ever to make a mistake? Is it not true this morning that as we gather together, He's an all-knowing God? He does what He pleases when he pleases, with whom he pleases. He's never obligated to explain, but he's always working out in you and me his masterpiece. Friend, this morning, faith in God is not the absence of pain, not at all. But faith in God may be the absence of understanding. Faith in God will always be the presence of peace. Today He's working in you. Today He's working in me, and today He's seeking that we all come back to this truth. The judge of the earth always does what's right. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark the road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper paths. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. Whate'er my God ordains is right, though now this cup and drinking may better seem to my faint heart I take it all unshrinking. 
My God is true, each morn and new sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him, I leave it all. Because the judge of the earth always does what's right. Friend, this morning as we come to consider one who has been through trial and trouble, surely there's no greater example given to us than that of Job. In a moment, he lost everything he owned, everything he loved. He's found in a rubbish tip outside of the town. He's covered in boils. He sits for seven days with those who have come to comfort him in complete silence. His wife is even advising him to curse God and die. And through it all, he pleads and asks this question, Why me, Lord? Why? He begs that there would be an immediate or someone who would allow him the opportunity to come before God and plead his case. He didn't deserve what he was going through. He didn't deserve all that had befell him, but yet here he was, surrounded by nothing. Surely he knew what it was to come back to this point. The point that what God ordains is right, that the judge of the earth only can do what's right. Because here are the words of his testimony. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. His eyes were continually fixed upon the one who sits upon the throne. And you remember that at the beginning of the account of Job, that whenever the Lord even gathered together those in heaven, Satan came amongst them. And there was the Lord sitting upon the throne. And yes, trouble and trial entered into the life of Job. And yes, Satan vexed him sore. And yes, Satan even wanted to lift his hand against Job himself. But there was God continually on the throne. It didn't matter what befell him. It didn't matter the changes that a day brought. It didn't matter the trouble and the trial that entered in. God remained on the throne. That's exactly the same for you. Exactly the same for me. Even in the darkest hour when the clouds are all gathered overhead and we cannot see a glimpse of His glory and grace, know for sure that the hand who guided you thus far is the hand who will lead you home. Know that He sits upon a throne with His eyes beholding His servants, the children of men. He's beholding your heartache. He's beholding your grief. His ear is open to your cry. He's not untouched by the feeling of your infirmity. Rather, at all points, He grieves for you. But through it all, He wants you to come to that same assurance that you know that your Redeemer liveth, 
that he will stand upon the earth in the latter day, and though in my flesh I may not see him. It's going to happen. Circumstance, trial or trouble cannot change what is unchangeable. The judge of the earth always does what's right. And learn the lesson from Job, not only to experience the blessing of God in the midst of trial, but to know the working of God to bring him out of the trial. And how did the Lord bring him out of the trial? The Lord turned again the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. We come back to intercessory prayer. tell you this morning that we fail so often in this matter of intercessory prayer and we fail so often to see God work in our generation, to see God change the lives of people that we live amongst. Why? Because we're stuck so often dealing with the reality of trial and trouble without ever identifying, yes, that it's hard. Yes, the days are tough and yes, the nights are long and yes, the tears are many and the burdens grow greater. But the judge of all the earth does what's right. He has called us, charged us, commissioned us to plead on behalf of those who cannot pray for themselves. Samuel said to a people, who he identified had sinned against God by asking for a king. People who were not in that moment walking in obedience to what God had commanded. He said, should I sin against God and not praying for you? We live amongst people who dwell in sin, who love sin, who delight in the pleasures of sin. But let it never be said that we feel to pray for them. Let us hold fast to the truth that God does what's right in our lives, that God will do what's right in their lives. And even as he uh, allows us this opportunity to minister in a day of grace, then we're ministering under his authority with his promise of blessing, with this great opportunity to see men and women one for him. But as we reminded you, even on Tuesday evening from the Word of God, it doesn't matter how well we do it. It doesn't matter how gifted or talented or devoted we are. If our heart isn't pure, if we're not living consistently, and if we're not praying for the lost. And so this morning we identify the reasoning in prayer. He knew that God was not willing that the righteous should perish. He knew that the judge of all the earth would do right. I wonder this morning will we know what it is to pray unto God on behalf of those who cannot pray for themselves. We 
There's much yet that we come to in this chapter. We've identified the purpose. We've identified the reasoning. We're going to go on to identify the attitude in prayer. And Abraham lays down for us a prototype of prayer that remains unchanged. Because, you see, the Word of God is that which we were reminded even in the children's talk this morning, equips us, prepares us, and guides us in life. The Word of God is that which patterns for us in the perfect model and way of prayer. And if we truly have this desire in our hearts for the Lord to teach us to pray, then you and I must heed and hear the words that are found even in this passage and in other passages that we come to. Why? Because that desired change will never be affected until the Lord has his way in our hearts. So we go from here today, and I pray that the Lord will once more burden our hearts for the lost. But the Lord will also give us the ability to move past that which hinders us from praying for those who are lost. And I encourage you that despite the intensity of the trial that you may be facing, don't let that consume you to the point that you're ineffective in the place of prayer. God grant that we all know what it is to enter in. God grant that we know what it all is to lay hold upon Him. God grant that we know what it is to play our part in seeing a work done in this generation. God isn't finished with this world. He isn't finished with this land. He certainly isn't finished with this time. May God grant that we, this assembly, would be faithful to him and seeing his work accomplished in our generation. Father, we pray that thou would guide us afresh, that in all we do and in all we say, that we will, O Lord, surrender our will to thine. Our Savior knew what it was to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so, Father, we come with our burdens and our trials, those things which consume us and weigh us down. Help us, O Lord, to, in the midst of the trial, lift our voices and praise to thee and say, whate'er my God ordains is right. Help us then, O Lord, to truly lay hold upon the truth that we find here, praying for those who cannot pray for themselves, praying for those who are lost, dying and perishing in their sin, praying for those who need a Savior. Give us a greater burden to pray. Give us a greater burden to tarry in prayer. Give us a greater burden to see thy work fulfilled and accomplished in this our day and generation. May we be instruments of righteousness in thy hand. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. We close this morning by saying together the words of Have Thine Own Way, Lord, Have Thine Own Way. We'll sing this hymn together, standing as we sing, and if you're not remaining forth in the remembrance of the Lord, then feel free to leave after the first verse, please. Mm-hmm.